And behind the intro music, I might pull out a couple of little snippets of this episode that are maybe amusing or funny or irreverent and kind of drop them in. I mean, there's not going to be many of those. No, I mean, do we want to give them all the content straight away? No, probably not. Right, what we'll do is we'll drop something in from somebody else's podcast that's like really clever and smart and insightful. And and it'll it'll be something like somebody's voice going, well, you see, the main reason that we would encourage trimethyl dihydroethylene in old vine riesling is because and then like yeah, dot, yeah. Dot, dot. So we've got all that be interesting and then it'll cut to welcome to the maker and the merchant <laughs> and then straight in welcome to the maker and the merchant with fergus elias and lee isaacs The Maker and the Merchant, we're back. Since we last spoke, it has been the biggest event in the annual tasting calendar for the most important industry globally for English wine, and that is, of course, English wine. Were you at the Wine GB tasting, Ferg? Funnily enough, Lee, I was, and it really is a reminder of just how important English wine is to everyone. I was going to ask you a question about this. Do you think the event as a whole was representative of the current state of English wine. I did, actually. I think the YGB tasting is is a fantastic event, really well organised, but it's a really interesting state of the union moment for English wine. So you get, you usually start to see, because it's held in September, so you usually start to see the still wines coming through from the last vintage. They'll, they'll tend to be on display, although... 2021, not necessarily the best year, so I wasn't showing a great number of my 2021s because most of them aren't out yet. Then the sparklings that we saw were mainly 2018s, so phenomenal vintage. So it's quite an interesting place because it's a good opportunity because you've got a proper sort of got the two extremes. You've got that phenomenal vintage 2018, which made some really good sparkling wines. I think actually 2018 is it was a sparkling wine vintage. I made better still wines in 2020, in my opinion. And actually, I think I made a nicer Chardonnay in 2019. But I think we made better still wines in 2020. But in 2018, the sparklings could not be beat. Whereas in 2021, that was an, that was an interesting year that, that was quite hard. It was a winemaking year. It wasn't a... Uh, wasn't a vineyard year. You've said a couple of interesting things there that we're, de- we're definitely going to come on to about vintages, because I, th- I think that's something really interesting to think about in, in wine generally, but certainly English wine. I agree with your synopsis of the wine GB tasting. It was a real snapshot, I thought, because you had some of the big players like yourselves and you had some of the smaller producers as well. So you had people like All Angels there, Oastbrook, Malbina from B612, who makes truly one wine. That was my first experience of the B612. Pinot what Blanc. what so did you think? Is, I really liked it. Pinot Blanc I'm, is a variety I'm desperate to do well in England. I think I, I love Pinot Blanc. I think it should work here. And and yet I've yet to release a single variety on Pinot Blanc and we grow it. We grow quite a lot of it, but I tend to use it for blending. I've yet to find one or, or many examples that I get really excited by stop and make a fabulous Pinot Blanc but B612 is right up there I thought and that's that's high, high praise for me because I love that stop and 18 Pinot Blanc was phenomenal. I was fan dabby days I encountered the wines of stop and in, in my role as, as judge and panel chair IEWA and they've blown me away firstly I think they represent really good value value is a very movable beast and ill-defined and I think that's something we, we will talk about in the, the next episode of the, the maker and the merchant but without diving into what I think value represents, that's a teaser and cliffhanger for the next one. I also think Stopham are one of the most consistent 
producers in the UK that, right. that's tremendously that's consistent and, and, yeah, and yeah. deliver. But back to B612, the, the, the Pinot Blanc there that we mentioned from 2020. Mm. Uh, interesting. I don't know if I, I don't think I mentioned this, but um, I picked... Are you going to tell me I, that you picked it? You I are, picked... You? I, really I didn't pick it? all of it. I picked several rows. I was there with my friend Peter. So I just think it's really interesting that it's so good. And I was involved in the picking. You know, I mean, you I, can't I deny this... I think there's there's one of my favourite sayings is post hoc ergo proctor hoc, and it's uh, after after therefore because of, and it's this <laughs> idea that just because something happened after something else does not mean that it's because of that thing. Correlation does not there equal is, causation. There is no correlation. <laughs> they do not do you, equate. Are you aware of the etymology of the phrase hocus pocus? I am not. Because you just made, you tell me at great you length. You just made me think of it. Hocus pocus comes from the Latin. In Latin, when they would break the bread, they would say "oc es corpus," which means "this is my body." Mm-hmm. And it's believed that "oc es corpus" is the origin of hocus pocus. I'm enormous fun on a night out. I'm glad you like the B612, especially. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I thought yeah. really interesting one. Really well made. Really good balance. Nice. There was a bit of minerality. There was a bit of um. Bit of reduction in there, but nice. The, the the sort that you want, real linear style. Really enjoyed it. Couldn't couldn't recommend it enough. There was there were quite a few wines there made with sort of wild ferment, lots of oxygen contact, and that's kind of your bag, isn't it? I personally, it doesn't necessarily fit in my winemaking toolkit. Shall we say that's not to say that I don't see a home for it. That's uh, that's quite interesting, given the wine that you sent me for the our wine section of this show. I I have to say I thought Exton Park showed really well. I did. I thought that rosé because when we walked away, we were talking about the Blanc de Blanc and the Blanc de Noir, mm-hmm. and they were they were very good wines. But I thought the rosé, that delicate sort of apricot flavour that it had, I thought it was really fascinating wine. I really enjoyed that. Did you try the Hind Leap? They did a. They had their Pinot Meunier sparkling. I didn't get to that. I'm a big fan of Meunier as a variety, and especially mm. in sparkling. I, I didn't um, get around to that, unfortunately. That was my. That I think that might have been. I mean, I tried. I tried some cool bits from Night Timber, but I think that Hind Leap might have been my wine of the show. I really, genuinely, was very impressed. Really delicious. Just fine. Although I did also try the '96 Blanc de Blanc from Night Timber. That was quite nice. 2010 Magnum Classic Cuvée. That was also quite nice. So I yeah. basically we were tasting together. I left the event. Then people gave you the really nice stuff. Yeah, they were waiting for you to go. I didn't know I was. I didn't know people knew me so well in English wine because <laughs> that they've yeah. they've made the right decision there. That's what I did. But the reason no, I had to leave. Ten hours in the afternoon. But yeah, you went. Sorry, yeah. You, you, sorry, I'll let you drop this bomb yourself because the, the it's, it's quite I, a good bomb. The reason I had to leave was I had to go. It's terrible being a wine merchant. I had to go to the Connor for a vertical tasting of third class growth Chateau Lagrange from Saint-Julien. Cool, so with... lovely. Um, so what was your favourite wine from the Wine GB tasting, Lee? Because, so you know, what, English what I wine thought is was... the way the in the life. <laughs> what I thought was really interesting was to see the development of Cabernet Sauvignon in Bordeaux over several years. It's a great but not really... Although there is Cabernet Sauvignon grown in England, isn't it? It's in Gloucestershire under a polytunnel. Oh, I, I can't yeah. remember who's growing it. I I, I was aware of it because Mike Boy from Bid 2... You never know. One day he it, might pay us. No, he's a wine no. merchant. He doesn't have any money. I don't know if it was the first iteration of this, but it was the it's the first one I remember him doing. It was called Jammy Git, and it was a Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot blend. And the Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot were grown in Gloucestershire under Polytunnel and made by Nitor Winery 
in Cornwall. Oh, and I remember yeah. tasting it. And it was, as we've mentioned, the fizzy bum bum. Fun, self-aware, no pretensions. And it was a lovely, it was soft and juicy. Oh, it was lovely. But the, the, the Chateau of the Branch tasting, I was incredibly fortunate to, to be at. We tried 2019, 2016, 2015, 10, 5, 3, and 1997. And it was it was tough, you know. So, um, I think to, to, for, to be a wine merchant, I think you have to be very brave, like um, like a firefighter or someone fighting in yeah. the, in, on the front or something. Well, yeah, I was going to say, or, you know, like a soldier. Because, you know, 1997 third growth claret is you know you've got you've got to really look like you know what you're doing i Mm. i am concerned that i was in this room i don't know how i got an invitation to i genuinely don't know how that's come about because i looked at everybody else in this room and they thoroughly deserved to be there they were clearly top sommeliers mw students you know bordeaux specialists yeah and me and then you now nobody seemed to identify that i was an imposter but surely of course the syndrome in your head but it was a fabulous tasting to get that snapshot of border and i realized i often get a bit down on claret and it's mostly because i can't afford it and i have certain issues with the way pricing went but when you taste top flights i'm gonna make it this is gonna be quite a bold statement especially given where my vinous proclivities lie i think when you taste the very best that claret has to offer no other wine can touch it and i'm talking about when it nails it i don't think and i love barolo i'm a huge burgundy nut obviously Mm. you know a lot of Italy and Argentina. I don't think anything touches the absolute top flight of Bordeaux. I actually buy into that entirely. I've been lucky enough to have dinner with Huge Johnson himself a couple of times. He he opened some fabulous Bordeaux. It was at that point I realised that A, I'm too poor, B, I'm not worthy, and C, no one will ever truly be able to compete with those wines. The top stuff is just Unreal. Left bank or right bank, though? I'm I'm probably a left bank kind of guy. Is everyone a left bank kind of guy? I I think because the right bank, because there's two distinct schools of school, you've got like that Michelle Rollon, like super late picking... Like really plush and voluptuous, and there's some. I'm not wine making. I can't make wine. I'm an idiot. So I admire any winemaking because it's still t- winemaking to me is still genuinely alchemy. Understand the broad steps as someone who's worked in wine for so long and been in wine. Everything. I I have a rough idea of what's happening. I've got this bunch of grapes here, and they go into a tank, and stuff happens, and then you get this incredible communicative, artistic expression at the end of but this sort of the Michelle Rowland style I, there's something about you have a glass of that like Club Claude de los Siete in Argentina is a good example that's one of his projects and it's just it's like liquid velvet and yeah. that's incredible but then you know you've got the de Bourdieu school also on the right bank of like pick early you make them lean left bank that's where I'm going to go because you've I'm, got I'm, I'm with you. no. And, yeah. and Poyac. I mean, does, uh, you can't really beat Margot and Poyac. Yeah. And it's when you get the top side, so I was really down on Bordeaux and mm. I came into possession of a 2004 Chateau Talbot. Funnily enough, which is right next door to Chateau Le Grange, which instigated this conversation. I opened this in 2016 or 2017. I can't quite remember. So it had a decent bit of age to it. 04, not necessarily considered to be the greatest Bordeaux vintage of all time, probably like a mid-tea vintage. But the purity, I've been very lucky. I, we work in wine. We taste great wines, right? I, I've tasted yeah. phenomenal. I've never tasted a wine. You taste phenomenal wines. This, this Chateau Talbot, the purity of the fruit. I've never tasted a wine that pure. And I've tasted great wines with purity. But it was every single fruit, it was like I, I was, I'd gone and picked that specific fruit and that's what i was consuming yeah. it was incredible 
but that's Bordeaux. Have you been yeah. to any any of the tastings? Tasted anything else exciting since uh, we last talked? I've not done much. I'm I'm in the winery, so it's it's it, my life. My life is pretty much ensconced in stainless steel tanks and lustful images of barrels. Do you do you do you get play barrel? I know I know you're going to tell me you read it for the article. Okay. I feel like we need to give this English the, the wine GB tasting a lot more airtime. So I suggest what we do for the next episode is we come back with like our top three wines. From Ooh, the YGB I like tasting. it. Yeah, like a yeah. I like it. Let's do that. Let's do it. But to the the meat and potatoes, we could call them out of this episode. I was going to ask you about where you are now. So we're recording this early September. We started to see a little bit of rain. This vintage, twenty twenty two, hot and dry. I think it's fair to say. So twenty eighteen, which you've mentioned, was a, a warm, dry vintage, but it had more mm. rain throughout the growing season than we've seen in twenty twenty two. I was interested to hear you say that 2018 was better for fizz. So to, just to compare to, just to go back to 2018, for anybody that doesn't remember, basically the sun, somebody turned the sun on in what, like March, and it stayed on till October. Yeah, I think, didn't we, wasn't that the year we had the beast from the east in early March? Yes, it was. We, we had then, some snow, a little bit of snowfall early, very early 2018. Quite so a lot of snow. In, in Oxfordshire, um, yeah. And then it went away, and then the sun came out, and then it never... We didn't see rain. We did see rain, but I don't remember it being wasn't wet a lot of it. until November, like late November. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's cold now. Why was it better for fizz? I don't know. I Well, I I, I have my theories. I, I have I have a few ideas. There's, there's, you know, for English wine, the cropping rates in 2018 were terrifying. You know, I think one of our sites came off at six tons per acre, which is just obscene. And you don't see that in England. You, see, you do see it in Champagne. You do see it elsewhere in the world what would be more typical two to three tons an acre is is part of the course so that's a significant increase it was a lot of fruit it was all very ripe chemically you had good numbers you know sugars were 10 to 10 and a half percent natural alcohol your ta so titratable acidity was 11 and below that works out really nicely because by the time you fermented it and got through even if you don't put it through mallow if you've got a starting ta of 11 when you pick by the time it's been through fermentation by the time it's reached it's come out of the cold stab tank you're probably at somewhere around about nine which is a really nice place for sparkling base wine to be you don't really want it to be much lower than that a couple of grams during that's about right and so the wines sort of made themselves in that respect but i just thought at the time it felt like we were making phenomenal still wines as well and they were i mean i loved the still wines that came out of 2018 but then two years later we had 2020 which was this harvest that was not quite the reverse of 2018 because it was actually quite a hot dry year but we had these quite severe frosts early on which knocked a lot of the crop so the crop load in 2020 was two tons breaker and quite low cropping year and the intensity that you got from the fruit and that it was different and we made more interesting still wines especially reds pinot noir from 2020 i think was something i really enjoyed working with we made two we made luke's pinot noir which i love but we also made the gatehouse pinot noir which i don't know if i've actually that- mentioned on this podcast but it's actually the trophy winner for the best english red wine in the world ever 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 Ever. So it's quite good then? I would say it's par for the course. It's difficult because everyone talks about 2018. 2018 was amazing, but I think we made more interesting wines in 2020. And I think England as a whole made more interesting wines in 2020. I don't think it's this is purely a Hashid thing or a Balfour thing. I think it would be fair to say of a lot of people. But I think the sparklings from 2018 were phenomenal. And the 2020 sparklings, we're not, we don't know yet. 
Yeah, it's, it's still too early. So if we take that, that 2018, sparkling wine is what English wine is known for. It's nice. Obviously, it varies vintage to vintage, but it, it sits around 70% of total yeah. production, doesn't it? Give it, give or take. We talk about Bacchus in terms of still wine. And yeah. I personally wonder if Bacchus has been over eight. So we, we kind of built Bacchus up to be, this is going to do for English wine what Sauvignon Blanc did for New Zealand. I personally think that ship may have sailed. I don't think it's had the resonance or maybe maybe it's not even left port yet. But we're talking about Bacchus being kind of like the flagship variety for English still. My understanding is 2018 was too hot for Bacchus because ultimately it's kind of a cool climate variety. No, definitely. Um, Bacchus, overripe Bacchus is pretty dull. He goes very quickly. Uh, it's quite interesting. He, a little bit. Of, what we tend to do with Bacchus is we pick the majority at about right. But then if it's a good year, we will hold a little bit longer and pick it later because it does. It becomes very tropical. And if you had that as your only component of your wine, this is your Bacchus and it's come in a week later than maybe it should have done. It will be very tropical, quite flabby and not particularly interesting. Once it loses the acid, it can get quite dull quite fast. That's the, that's the key component of Bacchus is its acidity right? obviously, and obviously you want to control that as a winemaker of course you do but mm. as soon as you so I'm, I'm talking to people about Pinot Noir when they're first learning maybe say WSET level two so level one they they know that Pinot Noir is a red grape and it sort of tastes of strawberries that's pretty much what you learn at, at level taste one of strawberries taste of strawberries yeah I mean not not the way you make it you know when you pick it so late smother it and open. oh no that's the I'm, I'm not allowed to say that producer's name because we haven't got a strong enough legal team yet but <laughs> we're in so much trouble wait you you you, you sort of learn about Pinot Noir and, and when you go into level two you start to look a little bit more about where you plant it so you go Pinot Noir is this lovely red fruit and then you're trying to give them some geography and go it grows here and it grows there and you, and you get to you can't grow it somewhere too hot because it becomes jammy. A lot of people are, jam's nice. I like jam, sweet. Mm. And you kind of go, yeah, I like jam too, but it's not what that thing should do. That's not good winemaking. It's not good wine. It's not good pinot. So Bacchus, you lose that acidity. Oh, it might be really big and tropical, but th- then it becomes cloying. So if we come into to talk about 2022... It's too hot for back. I mean, this everybody yeah. knows it's been the hottest summer we've ever seen. We've, I mean, we've seen wildfires, stuff like that. How is the fruit looking for you now? And are you anticipating this is going to be a good sparkling wine vintage again? Are you thinking about what? What are your thoughts? It's quite interesting because we've we've had a week of humid wet weather and we've got at least another week of rain which isn't great so the disease pressure is now beginning to crank up acid levels are dropping quite fast so mm-hmm. harvest may be creeping up on us a bit sooner than we maybe initially anticipated although actually no we, i've spent all year saying oh, it's going to be an early harvest and then about a week ago i went oh no it'll be fine it'll be normal time now i've seen some more analysis and i think it's going to be an early harvest again you don't want me to nail my colors to the mast on that sort of thing but no i think actually what's quite interesting about 22 is when it comes to yield this year's yield is going to be quite low in spite of the weather that we've had the problem we had was last year we had appalling weather at flowering and we didn't have a particularly good growing season as a, as a whole what you have to remember when it comes to yield components is that 60 percent of your yield is determined in the vintage before this is why i always think talking about vintage is somewhat reductionist in the terms of going was it a good or bad vintage well what happened last year because that determines anyway I'm, I'm, i've just jumped no, in to, to share an opinion i mean to an extent you sort of have to you have to go okay well yes but actually the vintage is still the vintage and mm-hmm. the <laughs> the wine still came in in that year and you just have to lump the previous year's stuff in with it and go that's that's why this that vintage wasn't so good but you're right were we all as erudite as you 
that's how I do it. The fruit set this year is huge. It's it's not bad. It's not, you know, from my perspective, it, it's almost a good thing. So yeah, 60% of your yield components come from the year before. 30% is predicated by the number of bunches on your vine. Do you, sorry, just do you do you happen to know the German for 30%? 20%? 30% is number of bunches, and then the remaining 10% is berry weight. But you know, it's a lot of the yield is already predicated before you've even the year has even started before but that's so so we've got quite a small year but we've had that phenomenal summer so i'm expecting the quality to be pretty good my concern is now that we've had this lovely summer but we're now into the home stretch and all of a sudden it's wet so sugar levels are creeping up and we're having this a lot of days which hit this magic number for downy mildew so there's a number for downy mildew it's 10, 10, 24, so it's... But you used to have two guys dressed as athletes go and phone this number if you need a phone number. If I phoned them and said, I'm trying to get hold of Downy Mildew, because it'd yeah. be on the phone, they'd go, sorry, we don't know your anti-Mildew. No, Downy Mildew. <laughs> we, we don't have... You'll have to call his agent. No, not Robert Downey Jr. Downy Mildew. <laughs> and, and they'd give me that number, would they? Uh, yeah, that's exactly what would happen. So the numbers are 10, 10, 24. And if you call it at the right time, you you win your energy supplies for a month. I was going to uh, say, that's, um, that's my regular Chinese takeaway order i enjoy number 10 so much i order it twice you order it twice so it's 10 mil of rainfall an average temperature over 10 degrees for 24 hours and if you hit all three of those you've got the perfect conditions for downy mildew to, so to unlike grow. the candy man where mm. if you stand in front of a mirror and say his name three times he appears if you stand in front of a mirror and go 10 10 24 you're suddenly covered in downy mildew yeah literally it, all of a sudden you just look great oh, it's horrendous because getting it out yeah i i was going to make a joke about my hair and then you said gray and i think you've already made that joke for me it, it, no it's not downy mildew it's just age i hear so. that um milk is a good cure for um downy mildew that's a thing i've seen someone spray on their, their vineyard i don't I th- think th- it works you know I don't think it why would milk I there was some science alkaline mm, don't think it was that can't just, remember I'll, yeah, ask, I, I'm I'll not... ask, ask a biodynamic I'm sure they'll be able to tell you it was weird is Danny Mildew lactose intolerant oh maybe that's it um, maybe that's also the... gluten intolerant so you could have do the same thing with just flour. giving it some bread so it, well if it doesn't like flour surely it won't go near pinot mounier it, it, just in terms of yield to go back to that will mm-hmm. the lack of water also we mentioned berry weight lack of water so obviously you, most of your stuff is sort of planted on some kind of clay. Clay's got a nice water retention to it. So I don't imagine the drought conditions have caused you specifically too many problems. But it, could it be that there will be other sites that perhaps aren't on water retentive source that the lack of rainfall could be a serious problem for them? It was, it was the first year that I saw genuine drought stress. And I saw one vineyard which had a potassium issue, which was then exacerbated by the drought stress and it's caused quite severe foliar damage. So yes... It's it's a thing. We're, we're lucky. Our sites are predominantly well-established, majority on clay, and so we've not suffered too badly. I'm trying to think. This yeah, potassium think... issue surely could have been solved just with some bananas, banana skins. Yeah. You know, I stick mean, bananas skins in the soil as they break down, release potassium. Yeah, that's, that's, that's all they needed. That wasn't it. That was unfortunate. They just, they got unlucky. And it's a thing. It's a thing that happens. But no, I mean, we're it's England. We we don't. The water table here is hilariously high in most places. So just to cover off this little bit of the vintage. Obviously, you've not started picking yet. No. What sort of things are you anticipating for when your fruit starts? Is your preparation different in this vintage as it would be in other vintages, given the conditions, or are your preparations fairly similar? And it's only when the fruit actually starts to arrive and you can analyze it that you start to say, right, this is what we have to do. I don't know. I'm, I think last year was the year of temperature control. So 
last year was quite lean. So I notoriously liked to ferment things really cold. I had Ortega going through at 12 degrees 2020, and I managed to tick that through. It took the best bit of seven weeks, but I managed to tick it through, dropping an Urshula a day. I usually like to ferment cool. I like what that does. But 2021 was quite a tough year, quite a lean year. So it was about balancing cool ferments with with slightly warmer ones because warmer ferments you get a bit more body a bit more structure so i fermented more usually my default temperature is somewhere around 14 to 16 degrees i feel like that's a nice place to ferment it's probably a bit cool 14 but 16 is 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 yeah that's my sweet spot whereas 2021 i was 18 to 20 degrees and that that sort of temperature difference actually makes a big difference to the wines and some wine makers already work at those temperatures you know i'm quite i make quite cold and I make a rod for my own back by doing it because I have to have a really good nutrition regime and that's just myself to keep myself going I was going to say uh, that comes know, back to the bananas but yeah biscuits beer usually some form of cheese preferably melted on some toast is is what what powers me through a day of a day of harvest here, here we go Let, let's get to know folks so you, you you spent a day in harvest and you know i'm sure we all know all joking aside winemaking is is hard and time consuming so you're you know 18 hours a day in the winery kind of thinks that it's long hours right yeah. you get home from a day winemaking knowing you could go back tomorrow you get home everything's fully stocked so yeah. all ingredients in what is it you, you make yourself to eat to kind of just unwind sleeps and then power through for the next day it depends how knackered i am if it's if it's moderately tired and everything's gone quite well i will probably stretch to something like i, I love carbonara dead easy i usually have yeah. a hunk of guancali just in the fridge so i just take a chunk off that chop up some lardons fry that off boil some pasta throw some eggs in and then there's dinner by week two of harvest i'll be frank that's not happening it's more likely that i'll go ah look some cathedral city and ah look some bread and i'll combine the two and put them under a grill uh, but then i'll sit down bit, a bit of I'll... worcestershire sauce somewhere yeah worcestershire sauce absolutely yeah. although uh, actually wow no last harvest i actually started making croc madams to walk towards the end just because i really wanted some egg uh, but yeah cheese <laughs> cheese and melted is a big component and then it depends i'll probably have had a beer if it's sort of if it's a reasonable time i.e i've got home and i'm eating this before 10 o'clock i'll open i always order a case of good ordinary claret from berry brothers it's my it's my little harvest treat so i have a case of that and so i'll open a bottle of that and i'll sit down and have a glass of that with some toasted cheese and then i'll go to bed and i'll probably put an audio book on and i'll fall asleep within or, 10 minutes or, or the maker and the merchant podcast you can listen uh, to that. I, well now there is this option but also uh, a big shout out there fairies good ordinary claret Oh, isn't it great and it always has been it's brilliant it's so consistently good i've tried other good ordinary clarets and i have found them wanting but it's, the berries i think is very good it's it's the one it's a wine i almost dislike because i've always said like look cheap claret it isn't really a great example of claret because claret generally and then you try that and you go yeah okay what do i know yeah. it's really good it's, it's so really good, good. Uh, so yeah. i'll have that if it's later it'll be a heineken still melted cheese and yeah the the portion sizes as harvest goes on and as the hour gets later get bigger and bigger and bigger so i'll probably start with you know two slices of sourdough bit of cheese and away we go by week five it's 2 a.m i've got a pint of heineken <laughs> let's be frank there are six slices of hobbits in front of me and i'm going to eat more before <laughs> I go to bed. loaves of bread aren't big enough when you're really hungry and you have something like that, like toasted bread. I often do, like I just sort of toast the bread and then 
and nice mm. slice of cheese, a little bit of ham on it, yeah. and then maybe some kind of condiment. Six slices of that when you're really hungry because you've been at it all day and you're desperate for kind of you want a carb load. Like six slices, now it's like half a loaf of bread's gone. I know. Like what is... They need to make loads of bread bigger. Right. I'm suggesting to the bread industry in wine. We have half bottles, 75 CL standard, magnums, bread. You can get small loaves and you can get loaves. Where's where's the equivalent of the magnum? What are they doing? Bread. Give me a magnum of bread yep. immediately. Now, as we're talking about kind of food and drink, this seems like a really good... I've had a question here come in addressed to you. Ooh, um, first he, question. He, he, he describes himself as a non-time listener, first-time writer. Uh, it's coming by email. We, we've had this email in. It's from a chap. He's called Chief Martin Brody. He's emailing in from Amity Island. And he asks you, Ferg, what wine pairs best with shark fin soup? Well, that's a really interesting question, Lee. I just feel like, I just feel like my beach is closed to this, to this particular question. Thank you so much for the first ever question. It's a shame it wasn't better, but... Thank, I'm not going to lie. In my own head, it was substantially funnier. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I came up with that, I thought this is really you know, Jim, like I so when I write comedy, it's incredibly rare that I would write something and think it's genuinely funny. The, the stuff yeah, yeah. when I write something that I, I do think is funny, I'm a bit yeah, that's not all right. I've, it's very rare that I write a, a gag and go, that's really funny. When I wrote that gag, I genuinely went, that's brilliant. I'd like to point out that I played that with a very straight bat. Uh, you played it with such a straight bat, I je- I didn't think you'd got the reference. Oh, no, 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 I had. Let's... But I'm giving it back to the bowler. Okay, there, well, there, there could be more of these questions in future. Could, could there? But, there could be, hopefully, from actual real-life listeners, if you have any questions about food matching, wine-making, English wine, wine in general, booze, please get your questions in. We're on the socials, or you can email us at themakerandthemerchant at gmail.com. Anyway, Ferg, I think it's... I think we should probably move on, and you're about to head into, like, you know, six months of hardcore winemaking, eating lots of bread and melted cheese. Maybe it's time to cover off our wines. Ooh, that does sound like fun. I mean, I feel like I've sent you a real doozy here. You've certainly picked one, haven't you? This I is... really have. So, Ferg, what's the name of this section again? This week, I have mostly been drinking. Thanks, mate. Uh, I think you should go first. There is a reason that I've sent you what I've sent you, rather than just going, I'll just send him that. So, Ferg, this week you have mostly been drinking. It's a syrup from South America, but I'm, I'm really struggling with Erazariz. It's a Chilean syrup, but I, I can't pronounce. How do you do Erazariz? Erazariz. If you can roll your R's, which I can't, which is one of yeah. the many reasons I can't actually speak Spanish, the other being I'm an idiot. Erazariz. Started, uh, by, started by Don Maximiano Erazariz in 1870. Coastal vineyard on Schist soil quite interesting a really interesting wine actually i've thoroughly enjoyed it i see james suckling has given it 93 points but i'm trying not to don't let that put you off so the reason i could you just confirm the vintage 2017 2017 correct the reason i've sent you this and it it doesn't quite work but i'll run you through the logic 2017 was a very hot dry drought ridden vintage in chile and 2022 as we've been discussing has been a very hot dry drought ridden vintage in england so it was la nina yeah not el nino 
La Nina, they saw heavy spring frosts, then mm -hmm. incredibly high summer temperatures, so high that it led to the worst bushfires Chile has seen in decades, led to drought. And one of the things that they saw with this was reduced yields and actually faster ripening. So it was a very early harvest. There was mm -hmm. the risk of some smoke tank. What they were expecting before they actually got to picking was, you know, very high sugars, dehydrated berries. So a very tough vintage. This one I've sent you from Aconcagua Costa, so the coast, it kind of is not necessarily the best example of those conditions because it's coastal so it was much more protected i was going so, to say it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like what you're describing i mean the nose is it's got this really quite aromatic nose it's sort of it pushes into not quite palmer violet maybe actually just violet it's crushed flowers yeah it's really nice i you've done this again because i'm i feel a bit guilty now because i gave you a wine that i didn't think i'd like that did occur to me it's like when, when you sent it to me and i started reading about it I was like this this has all the winemaking stuff ferg doesn't like i wonder if there's mm. a reason he sent it to me i bought that with Willingly, I knew what I was getting myself into, but we'll come back to it. Back to my syrup. I love syrup. I really do. And so picked a winner straight away. Really interesting, really aromatic. And then there's a nice bit of oak. Again, I'm picking up French and quite protracted time in said French barrel, I reckon. And then, yeah, it's delicious. I, I'm not, but it doesn't taste like it's come from a really hot vintage. I wanted to send you a wine from a vintage that was hot and dry and originally wanted to do was send you a Bordeaux 2003, but I couldn't afford anything that I could find. Bizarre. Ultimately, I, you you know, I knew I was ultimately kind of looking for 2017 chill. I couldn't find anything that would have been an example of that really hot, dry vintage. So there was logic there. So the vineyards... 12 kilometres from the ocean, planted in 05, 09, you know, really close to the coast. And this is the thing we think about Chile as being like a series of east-west valleys, whilst there's truth in that. But we need to think about latitudinally and go, you've got that huge Pacific coastal area. Then you've got, in the east, you've got the, like the base, the three cordilleras, the base of the Andes. And then yeah. you've got the middle bit. And actually you can be in one valley, but have three distinct climatic influences, whether you're near the mountains, near the coast or in the middle. Stainless steel ferment mm -hmm. with your favourite thing, spontaneous native yeast. Oh, I thought you were going to say cold soap. So they've obviously picked in plot. So the least amount of skin contact to batch will have had would have been eight days. The okay. longest would have been 20. So okay. there's, there's quite a diverse array there. So this gets, that is, um, I mean, these are quite, these are quite protracted periods of skin contact, which is an interesting parallel in, in, the, in the UK. I'm five or six days is the top. I wouldn't leave. So push they, that. It's also a varietal difference, I suppose. But mm -hmm. Pinot Noir, you know, I wouldn't leave that on skins beyond six days. Pinot Noir, you're probably going to be pulling out like some real bitterness after that right because of yeah, the way the, the, the flavor structure yeah especially in the uk because we're just not ripe enough with pinot noir do you tend to do any whole cluster no not here i think i would i would if i was somewhere a bit warmer but mm -hmm. the stems just the stems the again stems just was, even at the even at the end of the season they're not just not ripe enough they're not lignified i'd rather be stem than crush and get rid of those those horrible green stems here with syrup this is quite common with syrup because it's mm. very oxygen hungry so it's quite, yeah. it's, it can be quite reductive. So I know a lot of producers of syrup like to have some whole cluster stuff going on to get the, you know, use those stems to give channels for a bit of oxygen ingress. Nice. So yeah, there's 10% yeah. this whole cluster here. Now, just to come to the oak, you've, you've identified quite a long time in French oak and Ferg, well, it is French oak, yes. 14 months, 10% is new, 75% is second and third, and 15% is foodra. You sort of look at, all, at this wine retails of like 18 quid or something. There's a lot of winemaking going on here. Yeah. Right. You've got some whole cluster. You've got separate plots for different, you know, different lengths of yeah, maceration. You've got a whole lot, load of lot oak stuff going on. You, now, you tell me you love it, but you're not bringing any at Balfa Hashim. So um, it's almost like our climate would be too cold for syrup or something. You know what, mate? For you, I'll um, plant a vine of syrup. 
Thank you. Don't plant it on SO4 because it's not very good for iron transfer, is it? The thing with cyrarite, if it suffers from iron deficiency, it will suffer from chlorosis. So it turns out you can get chlorosis of the syrup. Um, do I need to tell you that joke again? Because you, you seem to have missed it. Chlorosis of the yeah, no, syrup. Got, it, it hit home. Yeah, fine. Cirrhosis of the liver, innit? Do you like this syrup? I like this syrup. I'm going to have it with some cheese on toast tonight. What I think is particularly interesting about this wine, I think the acid profile is really interesting. Because when, when you were talking about the vintage, I was like, oh gosh, um, the acid profile's all wrong for this vintage. If it, if it was really that hot white, why, why is there, why can I taste acid? But I think that's what's really, what makes it so good is it's got this lovely, delicate acidity that just comes through and just, just lifts the palate really nicely and you get this sort of cranberry note. Mm. It's a really delicious wine. This is Again, what you've done is you've sent me something that I wouldn't necessarily buy. Not for the, so the last wine you sent me in Alsatian Pinot Noir, I wouldn't necessarily buy because I've never really been a fan of it. The wine you sent me here before, obviously, we discuss it, it isn't wine I'd normally buy because it's, I don't know the producers of this style well enough. I've not tasted around this category well enough to, to have the confidence to go, that's what I'll go and buy. I'm glad you like it. I, I will I eventually think... give you a wine that isn't South American. I, I, prom- I promise. I look forward to that day. But, you know, right now, I, I'm I'm really enjoying it. I think that's, I think, that, you know, it's got nice sort of fine, quite round tannins. It's good South American syrup. I'm very happy. And, I mean, we, we're talking about syrup. We're talking about Shiraz. Aussie Shiraz has its time in its place. You know, that was what got me into red wine. I was drinking. 100%. I think it was, oh, did you ever come across Viking? They're like a, a bizarre Swedish couple who bought a vineyard somewhere in Australia and they started making, well, I think it was Barossa, wasn't it? We did a tasting years and years ago at Balfour and someone had bought a magnum of this and it was like an 07 Viking Shiraz and I was like what is this and then I drank it and I was just like okay yeah no I'm completely bowled over I still have one I bought six because they were 25 quid for a 2007 Australian Shiraz got some pretty old Aussie Shiraz in my cellar getting on for 20 years old actually I can see a share in a bottle of that I might even send you one on an episode you know next time you're down down Kemp we'll open we'll open open the Viking if you were ever doing anything at Hushing, like some kind of event at Balfour, like, I, I don't know, just imagining that maybe you had a jazz evening or something, you know, and you wanted to invite me to, I could rock up and bring well, some, yeah, some wine. Funny, you know, funny but, you should mention it. We actually it. just did have a jazz evening. Um, I hope really, it was good. I, I had a really lovely time. Uh, I'm really, was there, Libby Zeisman Brody. Um, I'm really pleased to hear it, it was a good it, event. I, Great. They, were, they are, aren't they lovely? Isn't Anne Creeble? Uh, by the way, could, uh, we, could we could we do um, ten seconds of how great is Anne Creeble, and then we probably should do ten seconds of how great is Libby Zeisman Brady as well. But you Anne Creeble, what we, a woman! We can't uh, condense the greatness of both of those people into ten seconds. No, we really can't. And I, I've been very lucky to judge with Anne. It goes without it. She's got a good palate. She's got an incredible palate. She's an MW. MW. Anne Creeble is a brilliant communicator. She's incredible fun. And she's she's got a great sense of humour, but Anne Cribble Lib- is great. Libby Zeitzman Brody, energetic, what a, what enthusiastic, a breath, what a breath of fresh air as well from outside the industry. Come in yeah. and taste well, um, mainly because she likes my wine, so you know she clearly has good taste. She's come from outside the industry. It's not an easy industry to break into, and she's no. got the chops. She's got the knowledge, and mm. she can communicate. And it's the, just the wild enthusiasm. 
and she's genuinely a nice person. Yeah, oh god, it was it was really good fun. I'm really pleased you had a great night, folk. Yeah, no, I had so much fun, mate. You would have enjoyed it more if I brought some old Aussie Shiraz. Yeah, but we were drinking Gatehouse. You know, while we, I don't know if I've mentioned. Is that any? Is that any yet. good? Does it got any awards or yeah, reviews it to back won that up? The trophy for the best English. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so um, whatever night. Yep. What, what night was it? I, I can't remember. I think I just Gasser. sat at home that, that week. I finished reading a biography of Chopin. Now, here's something completely unrelated. Last wow. week, well, last episode, we did our interviews and what's your favourite things about working in the wine industry? And we, we both mm-hmm. agreed it was the people. Now, through working in the wine industry, I have come to know a German countess. It's Ankrebel Countess. It's Ankrebel a countess. She should be. Uh, we were looking for a part-time member of staff when I ran the Oxford Wine Company. Got the CV in, Countess of Turn and Hernstein. It was like, I've got, I've got to interview this person. Patricia, who is a very dear friend now, she's a, a German countess. The Countess of Turn and Hernstein. I'm reading this book about Chopin, mm. and it's talking about how who, people who Chopin knew and taught. And he taught her ancestors. Her no, family no. was specifically mentioned in this book. Now, Chopin is my favourite of all the classical composers. So go, hang on a minute. I know a direct descendant of people who were taught by Chopin. That's really cool. Anyway, you, I'm glad, really glad you enjoyed your syrup. You have sent me Cantina Marilina, Sketter, Gricanico, Vino Biologico, so mm-hmm. organic. Um, now on the label, and please excuse my pronunciation, I'm terrible at languages. It says, Raccolta Manuale. Fermentazione in vasca di cemento con le viti naturali non refrigerato, macerazione sulle bucce. Anybody that Italian is exceptional, by the way. Anybody that can speak Italian is, is their ears are bleeding. So, this is handpicked, fermented in concrete tanks with natural yeast, Ferg's favourite. Mm-hmm. Obviously, not not refrigerated, macerated with the skins. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long it's spent on the skins, but this is is Gricanico. Like if you look at the Italian league tables of grapes, Gricanico is listed separately to Garganaga, but it's exactly the same grape variety. So technically, like, you know, like Pinot Precoce, which is actually Pinot Noir. Um, uh, it's just a different no, version I, of it. I'm sorry, so, it's not, it's um, not Pinot Noir. It, it isn't. It, it's, it, it's, if it's, you look at the uh, Wine GB statistics, which I think next episode we will look at more in depth, they include it. Gricanico, Gricanico is listed separately to Garganaga. So Garganaga, people listening to this, I'm sure will know, is the grape of Suave. It's also used to make a wine called Gambolara, which is very near Suave, but that's sort of in Vicenza rather than Verona, which is sort of where you find Suave in that province. Garganaga is late ripening. It's potentially very vigorous. Like it will be really vegetative and, and vigorous. So it's often actually overproductive. So that we've seen oceans of oceans in the past, haven't we? Like really cheap suave, and it just doesn't really do very much. It's like high acidity and a bit pithy lemon. And that shows you the Garganaga or Gricanico. Got, it all comes from, it's, it's a Greek grape variety, is the belief. It's Greek originally, Grico. Um, it has developed some clones. Now, what's interesting here is it's listed as Gricanico, and that's generally what they would call a variety in the south. This, this example is from Sicily. It's the IGT Terra Siciliana, which was introduced in 2011. So it's quite, a, it's a reasonably new kind of bracket. And it's skin contact. Now, when I poured it out, because skin contact is ill-defined, right? I've had skin contact wines that have been on skins for three days. I've had stuff that's been on for like a month. I don't know how long this is spent on the skins, but it has spent quite a bit of time because it's immediately it's got quite a golden colour to it. It's organic production, kind of minimal intervention. How much in your eyes is too much skin contact and how much is not enough skin contact like you know i've 
once or twice left stuff in the press overnight for 16 hours i wouldn't call okay. that skin contact so yes. how long how long do i need to do i would i if say i'm a white maker i'm making a skin contact pinot gris i'm in england i want to make a bit of skin i want a bit of skin contact but i want to say it on the label and actually mean it i think it has to make a distinct difference to the wine so you you have to be able to look at it and taste it and it's obvious that it's had some kind so i've had skin contact wines that have only had like two or three days on the skins and you can't it doesn't taste any different particularly than if that grape had been made in a in a normal yeah in a normal way it has to have been long enough to make a a distinct textural difference and flavor difference Mm -hmm. where that begins and ends is going to vary by variety of producer how long is too long is what basically when that white wine becomes overly tannic i've I've had skin contact wines that have got tannin but controlled tannin and and not bitter but when you've got too much that sounds a bit silly doesn't it it's like when the wine isn't awful basically that was a really quite reductive question to ask because actually yeah you're absolutely right how long is too long well it's when it starts not tasting nice and how long is not enough it's is you you're right because it could be something that extracts really quickly and you could have it within (laughs) hours you know you could have that skin contact feel you know if you've used enzymes heaven forbid though because you know skin contact appears to be the domain entirely of low intervention winemakers who might might not necessarily use enzymes get your your pectinolytic enzymes in there always got interesting articles on it in play barrel Anyway, this is so this is from sort of southeast Sicily, south of Syracuse, where as a link, one of the suspected origins of the grape syrup was Syracuse, but it turns out that's incorrect. It's just that they sound the same, basically. That's an enjoyable apocryphal story. So you look at you look at this wine, right, and it's skin contact because of the colour of it. And it, yeah. so if, if you didn't know that, you might look at it and go, oh, this wine's oxidizing or it's old or something like that but obviously from the label I glean that it's Mm. skin contact so that takes me to the colour rather than it's old there will be an element of oxidation in that skin contact so so on and so forth so it's fermented with natural yeast in concrete and then it spends six months in the concrete and then it's three months in the bottle prior to release it's 2018 vintage so it's obviously been in the bottle for a little while it's one of those I I purposely opened this quite a long time before we were recording because other orange wines that I've had so this is orange wine right it's not white wine it's orange wine other orange wine I've had yeah, needed yeah. quite a substantial amount of air to really get going. It's ultimately it's savory and it's aromatic all at the same time. There's there's thyme, there's rosemary, there's jasmine, earth, there's almost a bit of cumin, there's almost a bit of cinnamon. But the fruit, there's a real the core of this on the nose and the palate is lemon, fresh lemon. Then I kind of got like this lemon meringue, like meringue or caramel. Or so I'm guessing like the you know the yeasts have sat in this for a while, right? So you're getting some autolysis. Mm, and nice. on the palate, yeah, I mean it's it's long enough. I mean, autolysis takes about yeah. I think it's twelve weeks, isn't it? But on the on the palate, there's this. It's waxy, like candle wax. And this, the thing I'm going to say sounds like a pejorative, and it isn't intended that way at all. It's like really high quality aromatic soap. And you know when you open a like a really high quality aromatic, like a like a what's it pears soap, and there's yeah, a particular yeah. feel and smell to it. There's an element, and if a wine is soapy, that's bad. So I'm yeah, I'm, I'm quite ready. I'm, I'm genuinely. I'm, I'm sure the producer of this wine will never listen to this podcast. Why would they? But if they are listening, this is not, I'm, I'm saying it as a positive, because if you take the, the beautiful aromatic that you would get and that waxy texture mm-hmm. in this wine really, really works and it's undercut by an orangey thing, this peach skin, it's actually really complex, but it's that biscuity, mealy cereal thing combined with the waxiness to it. I'm really, really enjoying it. I love your take on this. This is, this is, this, I gave you an opportunity here as well. 
to just be really disparaging about a wine and just be like, yeah, it's rubbish. But actually, the way you've drilled into it, really it's, fascinating. Thank you, mate. I, it's I, it, it's, it's acidity that. is electric. Like, mm. it's energetic and it's vibrant. There's, a like, a pithy bitterness right at the back. Yeah. But it's but it, it's kind of refreshing. I, I might serve this with, like, a, with a hard-rind, kind of quite stinky, gamey cheese. I think that would work really well. Ooh, it would it would work with charcuterie because it's got the acidity. Genuinely, I really like it, and and it's great because the last wine you sent me, I wouldn't, as I said, wouldn't necessarily buy because it's not a style I usually go on with. Or, orange wine, and no. but this is definitely on that on that journey towards natural. I'm really digging it, I, and I think um, I, I'm going to keep half the bottle for tomorrow because I'm experience of this wine as it is right now. I think I've come to this tomorrow. I think it'll be a completely different animal. And that's really exciting. So thank you very, very much for that. Oh, you're most welcome. I'm pleased you're enjoying it. I would like to say that I'll keep half of this syrup for tomorrow. I'm probably going to drink it. I'm, I'm home alone. And Bethan's and her parents. My housemate is, I'm not quite sure. I'm going to have some cheese on toast. I'm going to finish this syrup. It's going that sounds really good. Seriously, good night. And in terms of opening other wines, I think we should drop a teaser as to the next episode. How many crimes are we going to be discussing well, look, I think we generally have this opinion that Big is bad. And we sort of go, oh, look at those big selling brands. They're not very good. So the biggest selling Argentine brand in the UK is Trevento, which is owned by Conchitoro, who made Casalero del Diablo, which is the second biggest selling wine brand in the world. Quite like Casalero. But, but Barefoot, yeah. right? 19 crimes. Uh, Yellowtail, famously. We have this idea that a lot of us in wine go, that's just not very good. I think we're missing the point. Those wines sells bucket loads massive amounts so they're the most popular wines in the uk now there's always an interesting conversation about popularity doesn't equate to good quality it doesn't equate to good so ferg came up with this i'm still you tell me what your idea was because i feel like i'm okay so well my idea was that i like you think that actually beauty is in the eye of the beholder when it comes to wine and whilst we as wine industry professionals may hold a view about larger producers and smaller producers and the various merits of the two it's actually quite a lot of people must like 19 crimes even though i make a regular joke about it being 19 war crimes is am i wrong well yes the answer is yes i am wrong because so many people buy it It sells bucket loads it's infinitely more successful than any wine i'll ever make they make more bottles in a year than i've made in my entire career also this year because you know i want to talk i want to talk big numbers i want to make myself look big and important here so that the big boys are like oh yeah no serious wine maker i passed my millionth bottle as head wine maker it's incredible that's incredible that's a, that's no that's a milestone it's like your, your first century break in snooker i don't know that what which... that means but yes it's quite scary was that what the jazz evening was for was it to celebrate your millionth <laughs> no it's really disappointing i sort of thought because i worked out approximately what time on the particular day of that bottling that my millionth bottle would go down the line and i sort of thought that at that time some balloons might drop down from the ceiling, a band might appear, and all of a sudden I'd be mobbed by adoring fans. Turns out that doesn't happen. I told Dad, I was like, oh, Dad, I've uh, filled my millionth bottle as head winemaker, and he grunted, so, you know, that was He nice. said something like, come, come back when you've done 500 million, like me. No, he actually said, well, I remember when I did my first million bottles and no one congratulated me then, so shut the fuck up and move on. No, no, uh, apparently it's not a big milestone, but for me it's been big. No, I think it is. And and all joking aside, I I think that deserves recognition. That's incredible. I had no idea. Pretty cool. It's amazing. I was quite excited by that one. Let's contextualise this then. So you've just produced your millionth bottle. The biggest Mm -hmm. selling wine brand, which is is Barefoot, they they sell 20-odd million cases. Yeah, it would take me uh, at that rate. It would take me 
So it would take me 72 years. Nobody wants year. to be making wine for 72 years, do they? Oh, That's a lot of cheese sandwiches. There's a conversation here, which is about quality, about perception and about popularity. So what we're going to do... Consistency. And consistency. What we're going to do on the next episode is Ferg and I are going to send each other some big brand wines from supermarkets. We're going to taste them. And, you know, we laugh and joke about being taste and we we disparage lots of things. Ferg and I are ultimately, again, breaking character. We're wine trade professionals. So when we taste wine, we can taste wine properly and not disparage it just because of what it is. One of the skills or two of the skills you have to develop as a wine taster, one of the skills you have to develop as a wine taster is being able to see the wine for what it is, regardless of what you think of it. Now, I've had cheap wines and expensive wines that I didn't like, but I could still acknowledge them for what they were. This is what this does. And it does that really well. It's irrelevant whether you like it or not. It's done it well. What you also have to be able to do, and Ferg, I think you're particularly good at this as a wine, it's a real winemaker skill, is you have to be able to taste the wine and go, what's it missing? Or what's wrong with it? What would make this better? Definitely. But I think I think you're right. I think actually that's always been my thing, is is it's wine is such a subjective thing. I I, I make the point not as regularly as I should in tastings. It's actually what really matters to me. I, I, there, there are two priorities when I'm winemaking. One is that our wines are consistent. I want our wines mm-hmm. to be, I want you to taste, you know, our Sky Chardonnay 2021 now, and then taste another bottle that was three quarters of the, you know, that may even be another batch of Sky Chardonnay 2021, and for them to be consistent with each other. And that's that's really important. But the other side of this is, I never want someone to taste my wine and say, that wine is poorly made. I've got a massive ego, so it, it does hurt when someone says, I don't like your wine, but I'm fine at the end of the day after I've had a quick cry. I, I'm fine as long as they don't say it's faulty. If they say, you know, this wine wasn't to my taste, the way they went about making this wine, they used too much oak or the residual sugar is too high or, you know, the acid profile is not quite what I thought it should be. I can get, I can, I can, I can agree and I can disagree. I will disagree if it's my wine because obviously, you know, I don't mind that. I I don't, I genuinely don't. I'd be, I'm happy to have constructive discussion about any of my wines. If people don't like them, that's fine. What worries me and what I really never want to see is someone say that wine is faulty. That, that's, that's, a, it's a, it's an important distinction is actually, I make a lot of my decisions based on consistency and fault-free. That's why we use mythic corks. Yeah, mm-hmm. sparkling. I don't want TCM. I don't. I don't no. want to bring no. the wine. And so that's that's what's really important. I, uh, for me, as a winemaker, I obviously want everyone to love my wines, but actually, more importantly, I want people to taste them and go, "Those wines are well made." And there's a there's a big difference between a really good wine and a well made wine. And this that comes into playing the really big brand stuff. And I'm, I'm keen that mm. like to close the conversation down because otherwise we'll we'll burn all yes, our content we'll for the next episode. It. But yeah, yeah. you know. Some of these really big brand wines, especially the big sweeter ones like White's Infandel, that's really difficult to make and make right because it's biologically unstable. It's got sugar in it and you get any spoilage in there, it's going to consume sugar, referment, etc. You, you've got to be able to acknowledge it to make these wines at these volumes is incredibly skillful and difficult. Whether we like the wine or not or what it does or what it stands for is besides the point. And I'm a huge fan of credit where it's due. Mm. I don't really like this wine, but wow, it's well made or they've done a great job yeah. of it. It doesn't matter that I dislike it. it. It's irrelevant. So that's what we're going to do next time. We're not sure. Every episode, we're not entirely sure we're going to record it. Obviously, we're coming into harvest soon, so Ferg's going to be really busy and eating cheese sandwiches. But Ferg, once again, as always, chatting to you about anything is an absolute pleasure. 
thank you for the wine and i'm looking forward to the next one it goes without saying thoroughly enjoyable session yet again cheers. virtual cheers virtual cheers see you next time thanks uh, for listening. I'll, I'll clink my glass against my microphone